This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. This week, I'm excited to give my mic over for the first episode in a podcast takeover series. In each episode in the takeover series, we'll hear from the next generation of humanists and technologists at Cal Poly who represent the future of ethical tech. Over the next hour, we'll hear from the summer 2020 technically human class. They've worked together to present to you their thinking about some of the most important and urgent issues in ethical technology. The history of technology is the history of profound changes in science, society, and philosophy. Each advancement in tech changes the way that present and future generations understand the world and ourselves. Over this quarter, students have been critically thinking about the concept of the good and the human and how this intersects with technology. In today's episode, we'll hear students talk about the history and the future of AI the dangers and promises of transplant technology, and how we might understand the ethical concept of the good and its relationship to tech. They'll discuss their vision for ethical technology, the history of these technological developments, and their concerns regarding the present and the future of technological innovation. What new possibilities and responsibilities does AI propose? What potential does AI have to change the definition of what it means to be human? Ariel, Andrew, Sabian, and Luke will answer some of these questions in their conversation about the past and the future of artificial intelligence. I'll let them take it away from here. Hello. Uh, Today we're going to be talking a little bit about artificial intelligence. I am joined by my fellow classmates, Ariel, Sabian, and Luke. And we're just going to go a little bit into the depth of artificial intelligence as we've researched it today. So a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. We wanted to talk about a little bit what is artificial intelligence to start out with. Going into what is artificial intelligence looking like movies, television, and pop culture. Head on into uh, modern examples of artificial intelligence in the modern world. And then finally head into the future of AI. So Ariel is going to be starting us off today. So Ariel, uh, what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, so artificial intelligence is also known as AI, and it's a type of technology that is similar to our own human intelligence. One of the notable forefathers that described this technology, his name was John McCarthy, described AI in the 1950s, more specifically as machines that have the ability to complete a task that for a human would require some intelligence, hence why we call it artificial intelligence. Interestingly, the earliest proponents of AI, like McCarthy and another scientist whose name was Marvin Minsky, were very educated in psychology and the cognitive sciences, along with this background in technology. We see these AI systems with a seemingly similar human intelligence completing a specific programmed task through something like learning, planning, manipulation, and motion, for example. 
if you look down at your phone right now, you should realize you are actually holding a vessel of this smart technology. Face recognition, Siri, these are examples of AI at work and are often associated with biometric technology, but that's for another podcast. So uh, where is AI used? AI is currently used in many industries, including the shopping and fashion industry, agriculture and farming, healthcare and medicine, machines and cars, and even sports. The list goes on and on, but essentially it is hard to find an industry that hasn't taken advantage of this technology that is reducing the need for human labor. And finally, why do we use AI? So going off my answer to the last question, AI helps reduce the need for human work and can thus increase the efficiency or productivity of a task without the need for using a human to do it. If we can program machines to do a repetitive task generally completed by a human, why not let the machines do it? Kiosks at fast food restaurants are quickly replacing the demand for cashiers, uh, reducing a, a company's labor costs as these machines don't need breaks, wages, or labor laws to protect them. Thank you so much, Ariel, on uh, giving us a little definition on how that AI um, is. So one of the many ways artificial intelligence has been brought to the attention of the modern era is through television and film. Luke is going to explain some examples and a little bit of the history of AI in media. All right. Thank you, Andrew. Um, as you pointed out, much of the American and international public have been introduced to the concept of artificial intelligence, This, that including myself, through television and movies. So what has been the history of artificial intelligence in film? Like, when was it first seen? It seems that almost since the inception of film, humans have been very interested in the concept of artificial intelligence, even long before any of the technology was even close to be being made a reality. The first time AI was explored in film was in 1927 in a movie called Metropolis by Fritz Lang, in which a robot clone of a working class leader unleashes chaos upon the city of Berlin and is ultimately burnt at the stake for being a witch. This film is an inspiration for many that follow, including Blade Runner, Superman, and Star Wars. So in what genres do we actually see this artificial intelligence? The genres of these films and television vary greatly. Some are stories of warning and the negative consequences that can arise from AI. Some are stories of friendship, camaraderie, and even sometimes love between AI and humans. Some are focused on the positive outcomes AI could create could attribute to humans and the world itself, and some feature comedic instances with AI. Can we hear some examples? Yeah, sure. Some of the mo more positive and lighthearted examples include Her, an unconventional romantic drama in which a lonely man falls in love with his artificially intelligent operating system. WALL-E, a romance between two AIs who also discover the Earth to be habitable again so humanity can recolonize. Another being Interstellar, which is a story of a space crew traveling through a black hole to find a planet that could be a future home for humanity and features artificially intelligent robots TARS and CASE. Another being Bicentennial Man, in which a household robot studies the humanities and begins to develop sentience, falls in love, and finally truly becomes a human after 200 years. Sometimes we see artificial intelligence in comedic films such as Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy featuring poor Marvin, the paranoid android 
that has a brain so big it can never be fully occupied with anything worthy of his considerable mental capacity, which makes his boredom and depression all the more pronounced. We also see AI and Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, featuring fembots, which are female-looking seduction robots with strategically placed cannons. Possibly the most popular genre of film, including AI and television, are stories of dystopian futures where human ingenuity has come back to harm us. Some of these we have explored in class with Dr. Donning. Most of these films are seen as warnings of the possible negative outcomes that could arise from future technology. Examples of these films and shows are iRobot, The Matrix, Blade Runner, Black Mirror, Westworld, and Ex Machina. AI has been a very popular subject of the world's entertainment when it comes to films and television, and we are seeing some of these plots unfold in today's modern world. Thank you so much, Luke. Next, we're going to head over to Sabian and discuss some of the examples of AI in the modern world. So Sabian, how is AI being used today? Yeah, well, as Ariel mentioned earlier, artificial intelligence is being used in many industries. For example, medicine. Now I've taken a particular interest in how artificial intelligence is being used in the medical field. And so far I've noticed AI is predominantly being created to diagnose patients. Now some of the more common developments of this type of AI are the deep learning based automatic detection and lymph node assistant. Both of these algorithms are being created to diagnose MRI scans and images of tissue samples. The Seoul National University and College of Medicine in South Korea both are developed the deep learning-based automatic detection. Now, this algorithm can analyze chest x-rays and detect abnormal cell growth as what happens with what you'd see in some potential cancers. Now, what I found optimistic about this algorithm is that it outperformed 17 of 18 doctors during clinical trials, so it's been pretty accurate. Now, researchers at Google AI Healthcare created the learning algorithm called the Lymph Node Assistant. This piece of AI can analyze histology slides and diagnose correctly whether a sample is cancerous or non-cancerous 99% of the time, and in half the time the average physician can. So right now, the goal of artificial intelligence in medicine is largely being used to complement a doctor's opinion and used as a way to double-check their diagnosis. With that high degree of accuracy, are there any concerns of implementing this technology? Absolutely. Luckily, the FDA and doctors do have concerns and aren't so quick to look at the numbers and adopt these algorithms into their practice. One major concern with implementing, implementing AI is the medical field lacks... Um, well, there's actually a lack of interdisciplinary knowledge between the technologists and doctors. On one end, there is a concern for technologists and programmers to learn more about diagnosing disease so they can program algorithms in such a way that won't lead to malpractice. On the other end, doctors should learn more about the limitations of the software since each patient is un has a unique circumstance. Doctors need to understand the explanation of an algorithm's output as well as whether or not they can trust the results. Doctors aren't going to treat all patients the same, and this black box of computations makes it really hard for doctors to understand the basis of the algorithm's diagnosis. Also, the trust between the AI and FDA and patients poses a big obstacle. The FDA has, proved, has approved very little AI algorithms to be used in medicine since the FDA requires a large amount of transparency surrounding the scientific method. Now, the complex mathematics behind these algorithms that convert input data into diagnosis 
is so complicated, it makes it really hard for the FDA to accept these clinical trials. In regards to patient trust, the ethical implications of AI to diagnose a patient remains a hot topic. In a worst case scenario, would a patient rather be misdiagnosed by a doctor or an algorithm? I mean, for the best case scenarios, there doesn't seem to be really much concern, but the reasonable doubt in an algorithm being wrong really hurts the trust amongst patients. Wow, thank you so much, Sabian. And now let's shift gears. Andrew, could you discuss the future of artificial intelligence? Like, where is AI headed? Yeah, so there is a lot that AI is going to impact in the future. Whether we like it or not, it's sort of already impacting us today. Things like transportation, manufacturing, healthcare, education, media, and even customer service are all being impacted by AI. How so, you might ask? There are many different ways. So cars are currently being developed to drive us around. Machines that do the same repetitive tasks are being automated. Textbooks are being digitized, and AI is being used to look through large amounts of data rather quickly. In a sense, AI is currently around us at all times. The reason we really don't see it is just because we're not really looking for the specific kind of AI. AI is being developed for narrow fields, specific purposes, such as the driving, self-driving cars, or you know, ways of machine learning and uh, seeing that data. Because it's being used for specific purposes, we don't see that as AI like it is presented in movies or TV shows. The idea that AI will come and act like a human is very unlikely to happen. AI expert Stuart Russell said that a fantasy AI showcased in movies are just that. They're things of fantasy. The chances of this being realized anytime soon, or at all, are very, very, very slim. This fantasy actually has a term around it called artificial general intelligence in order to distinguish it itself. This sort of AI where they can think for themselves and act like a human Well, this kind of AI is what most people think of when they think of artificial intelligence and is quite frankly the least likely to happen in the future. The biggest impact AI will most likely have on our future is the removal of less skilled and repetitive jobs. These are jobs that can be completed by artificial intelligence to a more efficient and better manner and don't require a lot of uh, variation within the AI. The good news, if there is a good news, I guess, is about that this AI has currently no creativity and no capacity for compassion and love. This means that certain jobs, although we can have AI help to automate the process and make it more efficient, we still can't completely remove human interaction from that position. We must include that in some way, shape, or form. So we're gonna use this AI to amplify amplify human skills in the future. While the future of AI is often considered scary, most professionals believe AI will develop will not develop to the point of annihilating humans. So this is just a little bit about the future of where AI is heading. Now I was just going to uh, ask one more question to the rest of the group. Uh, do you guys have any uh, specific ideas or thoughts on AI before we, I guess, end off our portion? Yeah, I do, Um, specifically as a Cal Poly student and what I'm learning as an agriculture science major 
is just how much AI is really helping the agriculture industry. Um, I took a plant, an introduction, introductory plant science and also a plant breeding class um, just this past year. And I learned so much about how AI is being used um, with uh, plant nutrition and breeding and creating plants that are are more resistant to disease and um, how feel how farmers are able to better monitor their fields and soil health, soil health due or because of this AI, AI technology that is um, really helping them dial in uh, their resources, which I think will be very important with our um, growing population and having to um, account for making um, a better use of land in the future. So I thought that was very interesting to um, see this connection between AI and my major, um, especially this quarter. Yeah, thank you so much for that. So does anybody else have anything else to add? Yeah, I'd like to, I'd just like to add that being a huge fan of science fiction and all, it is nice to hear that these many dystopian futures that are depicted in so many movies are less of a likelihood than I previously thought with AI being put to more practical uses in the work field. Thank you so much, Luke. Well, uh, if nobody else has anything else to add, I think we are good to call it there. Thank you so much. The question of what separates the human from the machine is not new, and nowhere is this more clear than the history of transplantation technology. Increasingly, technological advancement has merged the human with the non-human, pushing the limits of what counts as a cohesive human body and a cohesive human self. We've always relied on prosthetics to move around the world, from canes and crutches to support our limbs, to contact lenses that support and augment our eyes, and now cardiac tech that can replace our hearts. When do and when will these transplant technologies change what it means to be human? Amanda, Ellie, Isaac, and Caitlin discuss what sorts of ethical questions have emerged with the implementation of transplant technology over the last century. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Ethical Technology Podcast, Transplant Tech. Today we'll be giving an informational podcast and covering topics such as the definition and scope of transplants and how, as medical technology continues to advance, multitudes of questions and ethical issues continue to arise. To start, I will be discussing the definition of a transplant and different types of transplants available. The literal dictionary definition of a transplant is to remove living tissue or an organ and implant it into another part of the body or in another body. There are various types of transplants available, the first being a deceased donation. About 155 million people are registered as organ donors, yet only three out of a thousand are eligible for donation after they die. The catch is that you have to die in a very specific way to be able to be considered for deceased donation. Some examples include illness and accident, severe brain trauma, an aneurysm, or a stroke. Doctors will run a series of tests for brain function, and once brain death is official, then the person can be considered for deceased donation. The Organ Procurement Organization determines if you are a donor by either your registration through the DMV, or you can be approved through your next of kin. The Organ Procurement Organization contacts the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, which then adds the deceased to the registry. The second type of organ donation is a living donation. 
four out of 10 donations every year are living donations. A good amount of these donations are from friends or family, but you can donate to someone you don't know. You can donate quite a few things as a living donor. Probably the most notable are one of your kidneys, part of your liver, blood and bone marrow, but you can also donate part of your intestine or amnion. There are very strict requirements to be a living donor. You have to pass an evaluation to make sure you are not going to be physically or psychologically harmed by the procedure. In good shape and health, aged 18 to 60, and have no diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure, kidney disease, or heart disease. The next type of transplant is what's known as an allotransplantation. The dictionary defines allotransplantation as a transplant between two genetically different individuals. Vascularized composite allotransplantation, or VCA, is a relatively new area of transplantation. Vascularized composite allotransplantation is used to graft skin onto people with severe injuries, such as burn victims and amputees. Pending more study, the goal of VCA is to give victims almost full function of their tissues and improve their physical appearances. More than 100 people across the globe have had this type of transplant, the most common being hand and face transplants. Unfortunately, it is not more widely available due to the lack of donors, public knowledge, medical expertise, and risk of lifelong dependency on immunosuppressants. In addition, while other organs are fully functional at the time of implantation, these types of transplants have added problems of nerve regeneration. However, it is still a newer field when it comes to transplants, and researchers are looking into how to lower the high amount of immunosuppressant drugs that one must take and increase the likelihood of success. The next transplantation type is called xenotransplantation, and this is defined by the FDA as any procedure that involves the transplantation, implantation, or infusion into a human recipient of either live cells, tissues, or organs from a non-human animal source, or human body fluids, cells, tissues, or organs that have had ex vivo contact with live non-human animal cells, tissues, or organs. Animal organs are used in place of human ones because human organs available for transplant are scarce. Some pig organs are similar to human ones, which is why they are considered for an option for transplantation. However, there is a higher chance of rejection because the organ is from a different species. There are other risks of infections being passed from the foreign organ to the human recipient. In addition, there are ethical considerations that will be addressed later surrounding religion and the use of animal organs. Other transplants include autotransplants and isotransplants. An autotransplant is when your own tissues are grafted onto a different section of your body, and an isotransplant is when the organs of a twin are transplanted into their identical counterpart. Next, I wanted to highlight all of the new technological innovations which are paving the way for transplants today. As we currently see in all medical fields as well as in the business world, technology is constantly evolving and changing the way we actively perceive the world around us. When it comes to transplants, there have been a lot of new technological innovations within the past decade or so. For example, due to new technology, doctors were able to perform the first full-face transplant in 2010. New technology in transplant research has led to the transplant breakthroughs, such as the creation of organs from stem cells and orga organogenesis, the creation of anatomical structures made from a 3D printer, use of augmented reality, and the invention of machines which are able to help organs continue to live while outside the body. The demand for organ transplant grows. Scientists and doctors need to find new ways to supply vital organs. This demand has helped push people towards researching the ability to grow organs from stem cells. Stem cells are a basic cell in the body which have the capability to turn into any type of cell. 
Therefore, scientists have been exploring the limits of stem cells, how much they could really aid medical procedures. However, at the present moment, the limit of stem cell technology seems to be the fetal microenvironment. But this research led scientists to create new technology along similar lines in order to perform organogenesis. Organogenesis refers to the growing of intact organs or organ-like tissues from primitive cells. Just as organogenesis occurs naturally in the fetus, it can also occur when tissues or cells from a primordial fetal organ are placed in culture or implanted in living animals. Due to this natural occurrence, scientists and doctors are beginning to find easy-to-use fetal tissues and cells in order to generate engineered structures. Along the same lines as stem cell and organogenesis technology, new technological advances have also allowed for the exploration into the development of artificial organs made from 3D printers. Although no 3D printed organs have yet to be created for transplants, scientists have found ways to utilize 3D printers in order to create models of the hearts, brains, arteries, bones, and many more anatomical structures. In the very near future, these machines may be used to create 3D printed soft implants in which living tissue can grow to form organs. Adam Feinberg, a biomedical engineer at Carnegie Mellon, has been the senior author of these new studies. Feinberg says, using medical imaging data, the research have used a new technique called FRAP, a free-form, reversible embedding of suspended hydrogels to print simplified proof-of-concept anatomical structures. These are made of a variety of biological materials, such as the collagen found in tendons and ligaments. The test structures included the human femur, a human coronary artery, a five-day embryonic chick heart, and the external folds of the human brain. So basically, as this technology continues to advance, Feinberg is certain that they will easily be able to engineer tissue and anatomical structures. 3D technology has also been used in other ways to help pioneer new transplant technologies. For example, Cleveland Clinic was one of the first to use augmented reality with their hollow lens headset, which allows them to view the patient's face in a 3D-dimensional space in order to help doctors perform face transplant. The work on holographic representations of the face of both the donor and the recipient made the first ever deployment of an augmented reality platform in a trace face plant trans surgery. Another new technology which has greatly improved the effectiveness of transplant procedures is Transmedics, new machine which is capable of keeping organs alive outside the body. This machine was designed by Waheed Hassing, a former surgeon and founder of the Transmedics, who dedicated 12 years of his life to find a better way to transport hearts and other organs after having to be in charge of transporting a heart in a cooler and realizing how such a vital organ should not have to be transported in something as rudimentary as a cooler. Therefore, he went on to found Transmedics and create the Organ Care System, or OCS, a machine which is designed to replicate our human functions as closely as possible by keeping the organs alive outside the body. Instead of being kept cold, which has been the common procedure up to this point, the heart is kept warm inside the box. The heart is warm, beating, being fed oxygenated blood and nutrients, and constantly being monitored by sensors. This new device has allowed for organs to stay alive outside the body for up to 12 hours, which is clearly a game changer in the world of organ transplants. As the ability to transplant organs and tissues has grown, and as technology has evolved, the demand for these procedures has increased to the point at which it far exceeds the available supply. This has sparked many ethical discussions and challenges within the medical community, which we will discuss next. One ethical challenge is the allocation of organs and the fairness of the existing system. There are two key steps to gaining access to a transplant. First, one must gain access to a transplant center. Second, those waiting need to be selected for a transplant. 
Many potential recipients do not get admitted to a program because they are not appropriate for a transplant due to a severe mental impairment, criminal history, drug abuse, because they do not have access to a doctor who can refer them to a transplant program, or because they are deemed too old. In addition, the fairness of organ allocation is a function of numerous other factors, including the number of transplant programs and organ donors available, access to health insurance, geographic health disparity, whether or not the organs can be shipped without getting damaged, the standards for evaluating the suitability of organs for transplant, and much more. Furthermore, if the policy of healthcare is to save lives, giving to the sickest person that may not necessarily survive may not align with that policy the best. Thus, what is considered fair and equal in terms of allocating organs is a widely debated issue. For animal transplants, we can divide the ethical arguments into two comprehensive groups. The first group called denotological critiques, which are related to the action itself regardless of any results, and the second group called the consequentialist critiques, which are directly pointing to the consequences of the action. The most important criticism expressed by the denotologists is that xenotransplantation isn't natural. It is unnatural for animal organs to be transplanted into humans, and it is an inappropriate interference to nature, both in order and structure that are intrinsically good. On the other hand, consequentialists argue that there is ambiguity and a lack of scientific certainty and evidence on whether the transplanted organ can function as desired in the human body. In addition, there is a risk of viruses and disease that might transfer from the animals to the recipients. Examples in the past include cow madness disease or chicken influenza. Hence, the transmission of the virus puts both the patient and his or her community in danger. If the role of healthcare policy aims to keep the majority of social members healthy, the risk associated with animal transplant may conflict with that. In addition to the health risks of animal transplants, many individuals with different spiritual and religious backgrounds view the bioethics of certain animal transplants differently. When it comes to the separation of church and state, the lines seem to blur when it comes to medical decisions. Current technology has developed medical devices and implantations by deriving products from bovine or porcine animals or pigs and cows. Bones of these animals are broken down to extract collagen, bone matrix, and minerals out of them. These byproducts are then used to create and build medical devices, such as periocardial patches used to repair torn heart, surge bone, which is used to patch fractured or splintered bone, an angioseal hemostatic puncture closure device, which is a fancy gauze that increases clotting speeds. Now, these devices and technology have saved many lives, but they are derived from animals that some religions have contradictory beliefs on. In the Hindu culture, cows are considered sacred and to be revered and respected. So for them to have to consider placing a cow-based product in their body is asinine. They will try and refuse any medical treatments that involve the use of gelatin or collagen. But this creates a problem with many medical treatments. Gelatin is used in anesthesia, short capsules, and intravenous fluids for resuscitation. The ever-developing technology is based on bovine products, a byproduct that is frowned upon in the Hindu culture. The medical community is pushing forward and is ignoring the fact that it cannot be used to those who follow this culture. In the Jewish culture, pigs are seen as unclean. As stated in Leviticus and the Tanaka, states that swine is unclean to you. Their flesh shall ye not eat, 
and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. So for someone who is a practicing Jewish, to have a pig or a porcine-based medical technology offered to them as a source of treatment is extremely difficult for them to process. This device could save their life, it is to be considered, because saving lives is considered to be a divine commandment. But because it is a pig, it's pig-based, it is considered taboo. So now those who practice have an internal debate of what to do. Is it considered clean or okay to use a porcine-based device to save a life, or is it considered a sin to consume that blood? The medical community has struggled with this since porcine options have become available. But at the end of the day, as was mentioned in an earlier podcast in this series, sometimes people cast aside religion as a potential afterlife for a secured, healthier, current life. These ethical questions and debate have riddled the medical community for a while. Many religions have beliefs that are pushed because of medical innovation. If religion has a certain belief about animals, should the medical community research other methods of treatment that abide by the religion's beliefs? Or do the religions have to lose a part of themselves in order to conform and follow the treatments that are already out there and have proven to work? This debate has called the ethical questions of what line does the medical community have to stay behind in regards to religious beliefs? When a doctor officially becomes a doctor, they swear what is called the Hippocratic Oath. According to my family friend who is an ER nurse, they call it that because sometimes, in order to save someone's life, you have to harm them physically, mentally, or spiritually. So if a doctor is able to save someone's life by using a pig or bovine product, or by giving them a blood transfusion, should they do so and disregard their religious belief, or do they respect the belief and have to watch the patient die? What is truly the right answer? So to conclude, transplants have become a very prominent medical procedure used to save lives in multiple different ways. Due to this newfound popularity in the medical world with use of transplants, technology is quickly working to keep up with new ways to improve these procedures and make them more time and cost efficient. But with these new technologies and procedures come new bioethical questions. So moving forward, we need to consider all aspects of a patient's background, religious, spiritual, economical, and cultural, in order to continue to advance the technology of transplant and utilize them without compromising the personal integrity of the patients or the doctors. Thank you so much for listening today to this Ethical Technology Podcast on Transplant Technology. We hope that you continue to think about these topics further. And finally, as this moment in technological development surges forward at full speed, it ushers in urgent questions about what it means to create technology in the image of human values. What is the good? What does it mean to do good? In navigating tech and ethical questions about the nature of the good, Marina, Annika, Quinn, and William break down just exactly what good means and what it would look like for a tech culture to develop around an ethical core. As four college students who are highly versed in the online world of social media, cell phones, online schooling, and virtual experiences, we want to share what it's like to grow up in the age of tech, make the jump to a fully online university experience, and share where we find that technology has had negative consequences despite its good intentions. In a world where technology's role is ever increasing in our day-to-day -day lives, we each have to decide how to maintain a positive and healthy relationship with technology. Today, we are going to share our experience and offer our ideas and methods of balancing technology in our lives. I'm Marina Smeltzer, and I'm a fourth-year mechanical engineering major at Cal Poly from Paso Robles, California. After graduation, I'm hoping to contribute a diverse perspective to the technology industry and help create products that are inclusive of all users. 
Hi, my name is Annika McGraw, and I'm a double major in philosophy and animal science. I'm from Laguna Beach, California, and I want to study environmental law after I graduate from Cal Poly. Hi, I'm Quinn Charlton. I'm a business major concentrating in accounting. I'm from Mission Viejo, California, and I enjoy philosophy and I'm excited to have this discussion on technology and its impact on our life. Hello, my name is William Pong. I'm an electrical engineering major. I'm from Sacramento, California. I enjoy learning the ethics of technology because I believe it'll help me make key decisions when working in the work industry. So today we are having a discussion to try to understand the good and how this concept relates to technology. So before I give my interpretation of what this means, I think it will be useful to define technology. It seems obvious that technology is associated with novel human advancement and is often used to refer to gadgets and applications. However, I think it is a mistake to limit the use of the word technology to refer to a specific gadget or application. For example, we know that our iPhones represent technology, but we also know that technology does not reside within a specific place in our iPhone. Technology is not only the thing itself, but also the process the thing encapsulates. This process is comparable to biological evolution where stone tools, language, and writing are among the earliest ancestors to modern technology. Technologies are not tools, on the cutting, technologies are the tools on the cutting edge of this process. For example, we say the steam engine was innovative, not is innovative, because new technology has made it obsolete. Alan Kay, a famous computer scientist, stated, technology is anything invented after you are born. And using this logic, in a few decades, we will consider iPhones to be just as much technology as we consider stone tools to be technology today. Moving forward, our definition of technology is innovation and creativity represented in a physical system developed to provide utility. Thanks for providing us with that definition of technology, Quinn. So going off of that, what makes technology good or bad? Yeah, so firstly, in the same way that I just defined technology, I think it will be helpful for our discussion to define what we mean by good. So in Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle states, every art and every inquiry, and similarly every action and pursuit, is thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. So back to the question, I think analyzing the goodness of technology is inseparable from understanding the human context that technology operates in. Now more than ever, we are aware of the inevitability of change, and I don't think it's unreasonable to say that in our inevitable change, we aim for the progress of humanity. Whether or not we are making progress depends on the goodness of our aim. When we are determining if technology is good, it is important to understand the intended utility and the broader aim or goal it serves. Figuring out this goodness is incredibly difficult to answer because the intended utility or whether or not the technology is progressing humanity is often unclear. Oftentimes, technology can be ethically ambiguous, meaning it can be used for good or used for bad. For example, Twitter can be used to share thoughts with friends or it can be used as a boxing ring for unwavering politics. In regards to how we can move forward to form a healthier relationship with technology, I think it's important to figure out what role technology serves in our lives. Thank you so much, Quinn, for paving the way for this discussion. It brings me to a question that I want to start by directing at William. What is your personal experience with the technology that had good intentions but produced bad consequences? Thanks for actually asking that question, Marina. I believe that the goal of technology is to eliminate suffering and unnecessary labor in the world. Since people heavily rely on technology in modern society, it is difficult for some to see the negative implications. This is because people have their own opinion on what is considered the good within the technological world. This creates a dividing line between the good and bad of things. For example, companies might take steps to strengthen online privacy by creating new regulations. The creator of a company could define this to be the good. 
However, some might view it as an invasion of privacy due to data collection and other various factors. While I can't define a particular experience that had good intentions but produced bad results, a simple example was when I had my first cell phone. During that time, the basic purpose of possessing a phone was for calling and texting. Most people would define this to be the good. For obvious reasons, the device drastically shortened the time to communicate with others. Overall, it improved the quality of life. However, as technology improves, it has caused dramatic changes to the processor architecture of mobile phones. One significant change was the transition to a touch-based system. While other features were added on, our small devices quickly became similar to a standard computer. This rapid change caused people to have different views on the good in regards to owning cell phones. From personal experience, my intention of having a cell phone in the first place was being able to have access to resources quicker. For instance, if I miss a class session, I could take a picture of the notes from another classmate. The device made other tasks less time-consuming for me. However, as I become heavily self-reliant on technology over time, it has affected my work ethic to a certain extent. I completely agree with you, William, as my most notable experience with technology relates to my cell phone as well. I have used technology since I was in elementary school, whether it was watching TV, using the microwave, or writing on smart boards in class. I think my real use of technology, though, started when I was about 10 years old and I was first allowed to have a phone. I begged my mom to let me make an Instagram account, and after that, I was hooked. I think that social media has been my most constant use of technology, besides tech for school. Social media is supposed to be a beneficial tool for global communication and a network that allows us to stay updated on the lives of our friends and family. While this is definitely a good intention, I think that the negative consequences of social media have outweighed the good for me. I think that seeing all the highlight reels of my friends' lives makes me more self-conscious of my own life and the image I put out of myself. I also think that social media has allowed for widespread use of Photoshop, especially on photos of women's bodies. I started to see these photos at a very young age, which instilled a sense of insecurity in me about my own body and made me feel like I was only beautiful if I looked like the unattainable beauty standards found on social media. I think that social media can be an incredible thing for communication and keeping in touch. But as it becomes more widespread, I think it's important to acknowledge the bad so that we can teach our future generations how to cope with it. I really appreciate the point you bring up about the unintended and negative side effects that social media has. It definitely is prominent in my life as much as I try to keep its role to a minimum. Similarly, one of the things that comes to mind for me as an undesirable consequence of technology is the reliance on virtual communication and the lack of clarity it holds. With virtual communication, we often no longer feel the need to actually get together with people in person or go to visit someone because you text them or keep up with their social media posts. I know that I'm definitely guilty of not making as much effort as I should to meet up with old friends and stay actually connected in real life. My other problem with virtual communication, mainly texting, is that words cannot be truly expressed in the way you mean them. According to Psychology Today, Miscommunication from text messaging and email is very common. They say that in the absence of facial expression, tone of voice, gesture, and good old-fashioned vibe, we have very little help to, to we have very little to help us discern what the person is saying. Psychology Today adds that without these clarifying cues, we fill in the blanks with assumptions. One thing that I have found is that when we fill in the blank or try to interpret what tone the person was trying to use, we always assume in the negative direction. We allow our insecurities and fears to be the initial interpreters of the meaning behind the message. 
Communication is meant to be a conversation where each side gets to express what they mean. But when the, la when the dialogue goes virtual, it becomes one-sided on each end. Each person interprets the other person's words in their, way, in their own way they imagine. They should come across, putting unnecessary emphasis on words that were not exaggerated by their writer. When two people are texting, they are honestly having two different conversations, even though they are each reading the same thing, but seeing it in totally different ways. I'm a very sarcastic and joking person, and where virtual com communication lacks for me is its inability to express my joking and sarcastic manner. Many times, I find myself having to rectify situations because my text was not interpreted in the joking way which I intended. Virtual communication is robotic, and at times uncomfortable. It lacks the emotion and connection we need as humans. My experience of miscommunication because of not being clear that my text was a joke has made me have to follow up with a lot of explanations in order to try and save friendships. In person, we would have laughed about my comment, but instead I ended up hurting someone's feelings and having to convince them that I was joking. Although texting was created with the intention of bringing people closer, for me it sometimes has the opposite effect. Thank you, Marina. I completely understand this miscommunication. I, I often feel that my humor is misunderstood, and I don't really think texting will ever be able to capture the nuances of face-to-face -face communication. But uh, moving on, William, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on ethics in the technology industry today. Good question, Quinn. I define ethics in technology to be a place where decisions on technology all share a common ground among individuals with different backgrounds. I view the ethics of technology to be in a state of constant change due to the advances made in our society. We can attribute this constant change towards our capitalistic lifestyle as mentioned in the data religion from Homo Deus by author Harari. Within this lifestyle, Harari states that capitalism processes data by directly connecting all producers and consumers to one another. Plus, every new technology comes with rising questions that were never answered before. This forces us to change our approach and thinking when dealing with new technology, new boundaries of technology produced from rapid data collection and processing. I believe whenever people are surrounded by technology, they should learn to understand not only its benefits, but the downsides of it. A quote by Neil Postman, who was a cultural critic and author, stated that a new technology does not merely add something. It changes everything. Having this mindset provides an environment where certain individuals are not left out due to technological constraints. Ethics also plays an important role in setting new guidelines on how we should live in the future. Much like William, I also believe that ethics is incredibly important in laying the groundwork for new technology. Last year, I took an ethics, science, and technology course at Cal Poly with Professor Patrick Lin. Professor Lin is an expert in the field of robot, artificial intelligence, and technology ethics. He has served as a research director for the Consortium for Emerging Technologies, Military Operations, and National Security. And he is also the director of the Ethics and Emerging Sciences Group at Cal Poly. While pondering how I wanted to answer the various questions today, I reread my notes from the class and researched some of the topics. Before taking this course, I had, never, I had learned about the various ethical ideas that guide certain industries, such as bioethics, but I never realized the importance of ethical standards in the tech industry, especially in tech that affects our everyday lives. After learning about the decision-making process of self-driving cars, cars and the possible decrease in privacy due to surveillance, I realized that ethics might be the most important and influential part of the tech industry. Because I never even thought about the relationship between ethics and tech before this class, 
I realize that moving forward, we need to increase the education of technology ethics and encourage tech companies to demonstrate how they are adhering to a set of ethical standards. In the future, I think we're going to face a lot of controversy surrounding technological advances, so it's crucial to emphasize the importance of ethics now so that ethics is continually put as a priority in the tech industry. Wow, that sounds like it must have been a really great class. Just like yourself, I originally had a very science and math-based view of what technology, of, of, of technology, but through this class and the philosophy of design class here at Cal Poly, my eyes have been opened to the role and importance of ethics in tech. For me, ethics in technology is an important step of being open-minded and considering all possibilities at all levels. I do not think that ethics are only in play in the creation of technology. I think they are integral at every step in a piece of technology's life. From the very spark of imagination that technology comes from, to the drawing board, throughout all decision and design processes, in the marketing and sales of technology, all the way to the use and even the decommissioning, recycling, and decomposition of technology, ethics play a role. Something can be so good, but also leave out different groups of users, or if put in the wrong hands, could be used for the bad. Or maybe it is all good up until the end of the life of the product, then it is terrible for the earth and causes holes in the ozone layer. Or maybe its manufacturing process is unethical, because it requires destroying certain animals' natural habitats or puts people's lives at risk to produce it. Maybe it could kill a child if they were to end up with it. Maybe it will cause society to be unhealthy because it makes life too easy. Or maybe it causes a change in societal outlook for the bad. To me, ethics and technology is considering each of these possibilities at all steps of the tech's life. Thanks for the great and thoughtful response, Marina. I believe without considering each possibility within our tech society, it could create conflict and distress among individuals. Now, I want to ask how can you improve your relationship with technology or how can you offset the negative consequences? That's a great question, William. Especially with our current situation as tech is becoming ever more prominent in our lives. Going back to what I said by my thoughts on what ethics are in technology, I think that having diverse teams with open minds and careful consideration at all steps of creation, use, and disposal of technologies, there can be the most good in technology. In order to improve our relationship with technology, we should pause and take time to consider if we should be accepting and implementing new technologies, and where we draw the line for overuse and dependence on technology. Each person has to decide for themselves to what extent technology is good for them and at what point it defeats its purpose. Above the personal level, there should be some guidelines to avoid conflict between people's different applications and appropriate amounts of use. I think that we have a personal duty to maintain a certain independence from technology and to be wary of the line between having control over the technology and being controlled by the technology. In order for me to improve my relationship with technology, I need to make adjustments to where I don't need to rely on it all the time. I have to consider whether using technology will allow me to improve as an individual. Will I gain anything positive from this experience? Is it worth my time at the moment? I feel asking myself these types of questions could instill better discipline. Those are great questions, and I'm still working on the answers. And in particular, I've been thinking about this in relation to my social media use. Like most, I aim to have genuine and thoughtful communication on social media, and I'm sure groups on Twitter encourage this communication. But for me, the format and style of the app Discord is better for achieving this type of healthy communication. 
Additionally, I like sharing pictures as a form of instant communication rather than a gallery display, so I use apps like Snapchat over Instagram. I mention these apps because it is easy to make arguments for and against them, but what is important is determining what role they play in our, in our life. Thanks, Gwen. I really enjoy how you brought up the idea that we all have different preferences surrounding technology because it is so prevalent in our society today. While it is great that there are so many app options for users out there, I find that the amount of time I spend on each app is what has affected my relationship with technology in a negative way. I think I can improve my relationship with tech by moderating how often I use certain technology and what companies I support in the tech industry. During this pandemic, I've attempted to make goals to lower the amount of time I spend on social media and appreciate Instagram and Facebook for allowing me to stay connected to those I cannot physically be with. I think that spending less time overall on social media will help me to interact with the positive aspects of it and spend less time feeling the negative consequences. I think that decreasing the time I spend scrolling through posts on Instagram or watching TikToks will help me have a healthy relationship with tech as I would not rely on it so heavily. I also think that it's important to support companies in the tech industry that have values that align similarly to my own. I think that supporting businesses that encourage diversity and are inclusive to all people will offset the negative consequences of some tech and help us strive for a better future for the technology industry. Thank you so much for your answer, Annika. So this is where we're going to wrap up the conversation. Thank you all for sharing your expertise and experience surrounding the culture of technology and the good and how it's affecting your daily lives. And this concludes the first episode in the Technically Human podcast takeover series. Join us next week for episode two to hear more about how the next generation of humanists and technologists at Cal Poly envision the future of ethical tech.